Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river, moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. Hey everybody, my guest today on In a Mississippi Minute is someone I was admiring from afar while he was tearing it up in Music City. Multiple chart-topping recording artist, songwriter, producer, has an extra shelf for his Grammy Awards, and is a Mississippi-born and raised icon. Please welcome a man with pure faith, strong enough for us all, Paul Overstreet. Hey, hey, Paul, what's going on? Hey, Steve. Man, it's good to talk to you. You too, man. You too. Uh, you know, uh, we, we uh, like the Clampets, went backwards and uh, moved the family back about seven years ago uh, on a whim. And so it's worked out and it's been a blessing and, and uh, it's, it's great to talk to you. I, I, I've been wanting to catch up. I know you got a lot going on and uh, I thought uh, our, our show would be the uh, perfect way of doing so. Well, I tell you, I, I admire the fact that you got to move back to Mississippi. I think that just always the way you were raised and, uh, you know, where you come from in Mississippi is just always part of you. I admire the fact that you get to go back there and live. Well, we, I was traveling. You know, the kids were starting to grow up a little bit uh, to the point where I was able in the winter to coach a little basketball and be around them. But, I mean, there were times when I think, and, and you'll know this, I think I was gone 250 days a year with the travel and being in the back of the bus and and just was missing so much that uh, once, you know, I started realizing I could fly in, meet the guys. You know, I always had one foot inside Mississippi and one in Nashville. And I, I, I always struggled a little bit with the fact of where we were both from. Even so, where when I first got to Nashville in 91, uh, I remember everybody, everybody always going, wanting to write something about being in Mississippi. So I was trying to learn <laughs> to write something that everybody on the radio would want to hear so I could, you know, advance my career and continue to do it. And then everybody would come back and I'd go, okay, here we go. So uh, it's funny that it just, you know, hey, the good Lord had a plan to get us back. And, and it's been great and for our kids to experience being here on this Delta soil. And it just definitely seeped into their being. So it's all good there. So when you first got to Nashville, so you, you had to have similar thoughts and dreams uh, of of making music the world would hear but did you go through some of that with some of the some of the writers that you ran into that that had been doing it and been successful and all of a sudden they see you as this mississippi kid and did, did they dwell on it and writing songs with you as, as you went through the process 
most of the people that I was writing with, we were all from different parts of the world. Um, well, Fred Noblock is from Mississippi, and we wrote a little bit, and Paul Davis and I wrote a little, a lot, actually, and he's from Mississippi, which I'm going to do that Jimmy Rogers Festival again this year. I haven't done it in ages, and I think I'll fly down to Meridian and do it. I love it. You know, they got a lot going on there. I mean, it's amazing what's what's happening, and and just the the venues and the i mean it's they really they've really done a great job uh i've been doing a lot of stuff with visit mississippi and the governor named me music and culture ambassador a year a couple years ago and i'm still doing that uh of the state which has been such an honor but but we talk about a lot of those things and uh, i think i'm going to make a trip there myself this year sometime but there's a lot going on there right and you you grew up in newton uh you you were raised i think you were born in van cleve if i remember right but you you grew up closer you left sort of the coast and grew up more toward meridian right uh no actually i was born in newton but i you know by the time i was i don't know two or three we had moved to the gulf coast oh, okay so i grew up i grew up down around in van cleave and you know ocean springs area and stuff. um and then i'm at my junior year in high school i moved to prentice and lived with my brother my mom, my stepfather were getting a divorce, and so I wound. They were going to sell our house, and so I wound up moving to Prentice and played football up there. enjoyed Enjoyed living there for a year and a half, and then after that, I went to uh, Texas for a little while, and then I went to Nashville. Where did you go to Austin area? Where Where What What brought you to uh, got you to move to Texas? My brother was living out there, and I went out. I went out and stayed with him for a while. Got a job at. Uh, a construction company we used to go to this uh, dance club at night you know do two-step and i never did learn to do it very well but yeah. I, <laughs> I tried and uh, and so i was there one night and on the weekend they had a concert coming through it was uh tanya tucker and johnny rodriguez so i went to see that event and when i did i, I kind of looked at it and i you know i think i'd kind of forgotten about doing the music so much but when i saw them i went I think I might be able to do that. I went to the construction company and I said, uh, "I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go to Nashville and give it a shot." And they said, "Well, we'll keep your job open for you." <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's still open, I love it. I love it. Oh, no. <laughs> We're with Paul Overstreet. He is. In, you're in Nashville right now, Paul. Yeah. I do want to talk about your 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 upbringing and your and your mom and dad and and uh and talk about sort of how were you were you doing things at church and and performing and playing along the way i mean i did that and it was a big help for me to sort of uh cut my teeth and start to perform besides slipping in some uh juke joints when i was a little boy when i got in trouble a lot but for you how did it how did it sort of start oh music yeah well my mom and stepfather took me to see a movie when i was about eight years old <clears throat> and my stepfather played guitar, my brother played guitar, my brother-in-law played guitar. I saw this movie about Hank Williams and his life, and I was about eight years old, and I had already started playing the guitar a little bit, and when I saw that he took his guitar and wrote songs, you know, he made a living doing that, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I really think that that had an impact on me, and I... I just always, I started trying to write, like Marty Robbins and Hank Williams, and I got really frustrated because I couldn't, I wasn't, I mean, I just couldn't write songs as good as what theirs were, so I was frustrated, I guess, in a way. But, you know, as time went by, you kind of get with a lot of other writers, and they kind of help you get through, you know, some 
areas that you might would stumble, you know, when you have co-riders, Right. Kind of lift each other up. For me, it was a guy named Eugene Powell who hung out behind my dad's liquor store, and he would uh, come at the end of the day, and and I've said it on uh, the radio shows, probably boring the heck out of everybody, but I haven't told you this, and, and postmen would show up late in their day, and, and he'd play, and I was 10. I, I don't know, man. I just loved seeing him play guitar and write about whatever he was talking about, whatever happened in his day, and I just wanted to do that. So I raced home, and I started to write, you know, like, I guess more poem form and then I said I gotta learn to play guitar so I just really learned quick just enough to play you know uh, the three chords and a minor and and sort of Mm -hmm. trying to understand sort of the theory behind how you can how every you know keys got their chords that belong I mean I was understanding that young enough to where I could sort of turn these into you know into in those those poems into songs but you're right like my mentors were Roger Murrah and Mark Allen Springer and Rafe Van Hoy uh, I was able to, you know, with Radney Foster, I was able to do a lot of uh, of writing with those guys. And my first writing experiences with with uh, the late, I just loved him so much, A.J. Masters and then Don Goodman. You know, my songs when I showed up were, Paul, they were, uh, they were long. I mean, like, yeah, they were yeah. like, you know, I mean, uh, uh, full of a lot of nothing. And uh, when I realized that the, it was harder writing shorter, because... <laughs> It had yeah. to be impactful, you know. Everything had to matter. I did go to Nashville to record when I was a, when I was a young teenager. I kept shopping in New York and L.A. I remember I was in New York, and Ahmed Erdogan, the great record guy from Atlantic Records, uh, founder, him and his brother. I I made my way a few times to see him, and this one particular time, he plays me a work tape, and Mark Cohen was talking to him, and saying, "Oh, I just you know wrote this song, and it was walking in Memphis," and he goes. I'm going to sign you or sign him. And it wasn't hard to be honest, meaning I didn't have it. And, and, and I told him that. And he goes, well, I don't know what you are. You know, you got this blues and this country and this pop and this rock feel and this sort of folk feel. And I just think that you don't have this. And this is, this is a Grammy-type winning song, which later on it went to do. Went, a couple years later, it was, it, you know, it, made, it took a while to get to Greenville, Mississippi. But when it did, you knew it was a hit. Oh yeah, uh, and it was, was sort of that was a big record. Well, yeah, and it was my. It became my sort of like, I got to be that good. So uh, that was sort of my my deal. And obviously, you had you had the early days of SKO when you did the. Didn't you do something with Freddie Noblock? Yeah, Fred uh, with me, Fred and Tom Schuyler. We did a. Well, we just kind of started playing uh, the Bluebird and and things like that here in Nashville together. And we decided we'd learn each other's songs and try to sing the backgrounds and, and things like that and with each other while we each one would play their songs. And, and some people heard us and went, you know what, you guys are really good. They started talking it up about us doing a group thing, and then MTM Records saw us do that, wanted to sign us to um, a contract. And Mary Tyler Moore, you know, I was like, wow. Unbelievable. Well, that's talent. I mean, the three of you guys... That's crazy. And we couldn't get we couldn't get the time of day from any of the other labels here. In that in that interesting and in the three of you the careers that the three of you had, I think that what happens is you're different. And a lot of labels at the time they're always looking for what's going on rather than what's coming. You know, and yeah, if you're a little True. different, it changes everything. I'm with Paul Overstreet. Just incredible singer, songwriter, producer, recording artist, had more hits than I did. Just an amazing soul, has amazing faith. You are in a Mississippi Minute. I'm Steve Azar. We'll be right back. The Super Talk app. Hop it in. Hop it in. 
and turn it on. Listen to your favorite shows anytime you darn well please. The Super Talk app. It's free. Download the Super Talk app now. 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 In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm going to love you forever and ever, forever and ever, amen. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. You are back in a Mississippi Minute. My guest today is Mississippi born, uh, just amazing singer-songwriter, Paul Overstreet. Uh, we he is in Nashville. I'm in Mississippi, but both our hearts are, live and dwell here. Uh, Paul, I remember uh, I had done. I, I was on Universal. I guess it turned in Universal it was Mercury, and we got bought up. And it was after my waiting on Joe, and I don't have to be meet on Monday and all that. And I remember uh, uh, signing for a brief moment. I was about to go on tour with Bob Seger for the year, and I remember signing with Keith Falaze and those guys uh, at a label and always hanging out at the house, and your son was in there with Ryan and the guys with Hot uh, Shelly Ray, right? Yeah, Hot Shelly Ray, yeah. And it was Nash, right? It was Nash. It wasn't Cord. Yeah, yeah. it was Nash. And I guess they... I, Cord, eventually, Cord eventually got a uh, gig on that show Glee, and he right. did that for like six years. So, so I love it. Your sons are Cord and Nash, and my son, our oldest son, Strack, which is a family name, and everybody thinks it's Strat like a guitar. But uh, I have to always oh. fix that. But, <laughs> but leave it to us to name our kids something that you got to go. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so Nash, so Hot Shell Ray was the name of Ryan's. If I remember, Ryan Falaze's girlfriend is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think that was uh, originally. I- you know, there were several stories around how groups get their names, and that one's a little bit mysterious. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they they made a run, and I, I I know that that they were all teenagers, and but I remember going in there, going like, this is like a super group of of kids from it's, it's got the genetic thing going, you know, <laughs> like like a well trained like athletes getting yeah. together and breeding. You guys, <laughs> they were second generation, you know, all of them in the band. Oh, no, I know. All right, okay, so I got to talk to you about your songs and stuff. I, and I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, okay, so the Randy Travis days. I, at that point, I was really listening to a lot of Bruce Springsteen, and I, I just loved real artists, right? And I was at Delta State, and a friend of mine named Jimmy Lang, we called him by his full name. I grew up with him uh, from day one, and we ended up going to college together, went to high school together and everything. And, and he came in and played me Randy Travis. And, mm-hmm. and it was so off the beaten path of what we were listening to at the time, but always gravitating toward what's honest and real. And, I mean, you wrote Forever and Ever Amen, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, on the other hand, Digging Up Bones, Forever and Ever Amen, and Deeper Than the Holler, um, and it's a couple more, but uh, the, uh, No Place Like Home, um, Laura, uh, was another one. And I have another, I have a recording of Randy singing a demo that we wrote and i'm going to try to put a band behind it it was just a guitar vocal i'm going to try to cut it and pull see if i can get that vocal off it was so long ago if the tape will let me you know get it right and isolate it it'll be good so Uh, anyway well so i wrote a lot of songs with him well so digging up bones is the first song i ever heard on him so it was it was i mean i can remember you know when you when you hear a song and it just moves you and just you're just knocked out by just you don't think overthink it 
you're just a listener that loves music and that is the yeah. song that i remember and I, that probably was that the one that broke him or oh wait a minute. okay if i remember right you, there was a song one of your songs was out first and then that yeah, broke on the, other hand. on the other hand right and then they came back to on the other hand afterwards is that what they did yeah they put out they put out on the other hand and uh radio didn't know who he was but a lot of stations were playing it and then uh Jim Ed Norman was running Warner Brothers at the time, and he went out to do a, a promo tour for Hank Jr.'s record. Mm-hmm. And he came back, and he asked his promotion guys, he said, man, what's going on with that Randy Travis record? And they said, well, we lost it. And he said, what? And he said, yeah, we lost the record. And he said, well, every place I went, they wanted to talk about Randy Travis. You know, so then they put out 1982, and that was that song went on up to the you know top ten, I think, maybe. And so they decided to re-release On the Other Hand, which became a number one record. And so it's kind of an interesting story. You don't hear about people re-releasing a song no. once it's out. You know, it doesn't happen that often, but it did with that song. Well, it's, it's funny because you, if you think about it, you, uh, you sort of blaze the trail and you sort of feel like sometimes you're just throwing that first song out to sort of just create enough of a buzz to come with something that's, you know, hopefully going to work. But going back to it, I mean... For people that don't understand the industry, um, if you lose your bullet, a bullet means you increase spins the following week. On Monday, it was like D-Day for records, right? <laughs> it yeah. was like the yeah. day that it was a nerve-wracking day for labels, and you had to see if your spins were up higher that week than they were before. And if they weren't, you'd lose your bullet. And so, and losing a bullet back then was, was devastating, so to come sure. to come back, Paul. We're talking to Paul Overstreet to come back and and re-release a record. I mean, I in my time in Nashville, I never saw that. Yeah, me no. I, as much as much as I've been around the industry, I've never seen it. Well, let's talk about let's talk about uh, these songs because as I think people really want to understand. I mean, it's great doing storytelling when you get to go play live, but on our radio show here, we get to talk about how the songs are written and sort of give people. Uh, you know, sort of that inside track. So talk about Forever and Ever, Amen, because that song has has really struck a chord with me in my life. I mean, it's just one of those things where it's just so special. Obviously, your your upbringing and your faith. Um, and take me to the day that you wrote it. Uh, did it was it one of those things where you wrote it to the you wrote yourself to the chorus, or did, was the idea there? Uh, well, you know the. Uh in Nashville, we used to do this golf tournament every year out at Henry Horton State Park. Right. And it was an industry golf tournament. And I was I had been out there playing golf, and I think I'd went out playing like 36 holes of golf or something. And after the game, I called home, and they said, uh, Don Slitz is trying to get a hold of you. And so I said, what's he, what's he want? They got, I don't know. So I called him up, and he said, man, I've got this idea for a song that we need to write. And he, and he said, man, and we need to do it now. And I'm like going, geez, I'm tired. But <clears throat> that was one of the lessons I learned in Nashville. Even when you don't feel like going to work, sometimes you just got to do it. And that was the day. So I said, well, yeah, so I said, just let me get home and I'll <laughs> get something to eat and come on over and we'll write it. So he came over and the, the theme of the song, well, where the idea came from was his uh, wife, Polly, had a son and he was learning to say the Lord's Prayer. And so after... At the end of the Lord's Prayer, you know, forever and ever, amen. And then he would say it after everything. He'd walk around the house going, Mommy, I love you forever and ever, amen. Wow. And he, 
everything he'd say he was using that and so don said i just think there's i think that's a really great idea <laughs> and i agreed and so he had some of the course already going and so we jumped on it and, and rode it sitting on my front porch with a candle burning wow and, yeah because it was late and, and you then, played golf you know, all day we, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> gotta play more golf <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, that was kind of the story behind it. And then uh, the Robin Palmer was our song plugger at the time, and she took it straight to Randy's people, and they cut it right away. So back then, you think, well, first of all, I've played in that golf event many times. I won it a few times. So we that golf was a wow. huge. So golf, when I first got to town, I met, uh, I met R.C. Bannon, and R.C. had just gotten a divorce with Louise Mandrell. And he wouldn't, you know, he was really nice, and he was doing some stuff for RCA, and they said we're looking for a hat act, and he bought my he bought my lunch at Houston's, and that was it. Well, the next time I saw him was at uh, at a Music City event at the Hermitage, and it was a, you know, we were playing on our own, and I won the thing, and then ran, uh, RC and I became friends and golf partners, and literally didn't write any songs for about seven or eight years, and we I bet we won together probably about 34 ball events together at Brentwood Country Club and all that. So golf was a place for me uh, that I uh, I got Keith Stegall signed me on the golf course. Uh, I mean that I mean every record deal publishing deal I ever got had something to do with golf and and I drive my listeners crazy about talking about it, but it's the place. And it's the only sport, the all the sports we ever grew up with, you're so competing against each other. There's so much time to get to know somebody, and you're either going to like them or not. And golf is a true test of honesty, and 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 I think that people sort of figure out if they want to spend time and do things with them and build that relationship. And in our world, make records. RC and I, R, uh, RC and I ended up uh, co-writing. I don't have to be me till Monday with a buddy of mine and my band that's been with me forever, Jason Young. And it was the second song we ever wrote together after eight years of playing golf. <laughs> so wow. so you think about how I mean we we never thought of writing together. We just thought of you know, we just thought of playing golf together and we got so comfortable with each other and sometimes that that plays in his favor. I am with Paul Overstreet and just amazing amazing uh Mississippi born uh just he's done it all in the music business and he's one of the best ever. Oh. So Mississippi being the birthplace of American music. You get to play DJ. Lead us into the break. Would you like to hear a little Faith Hill or or my man Little Milton? Uh, actually, I'd like to hear Little Milton. I love it. I love it. Uh, he was uh, he was a big mentor of mine growing up. He used to call me Little Azar. I am Steve Azar, and we are with Great Paul Overstreet. You are in a Mississippi minute. We'll be right. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Steve Azar on Facebook.com Steve Azar Live and listen to all my music, Steve Azar and Steve Azar and the King's Men, wherever you download or stream. It's 
easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. That smile on your face lets me know that you need me. There's a truth in your eyes saying you'll never leave me. The touch of your hand says you'll catch me if ever I fall. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. You are way inside of Mississippi Minute. My guest today is the fabulous Paul Overstreet, Mississippi, born and raised. Uh, has a job still waiting on him somewhere in Texas, but I don't think that uh, I think they need to keep the lights on for him. Hey, Paul. So let's talk about this. I'm good friends with Dan Tominski. He's uh, we 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 played a lot of golf together, and and we spent a lot of time together doing charity events and and all that. You talk about when you say nothing at all, and obviously Keith Whitley. Uh, let's talk about that song because that's one of the greatest songs ever written. It'll be re-recorded a million times, and uh, you can stretch your farm out for days and days because uh, it's just one of those things that a copyright that you think about that is just so priceless. Um, tell me the story, and I know Allison re-recorded it, and and, and Allison Krauss and Union Station. So take me take me uh, on the venture of what was going on in your head and and how that song came to be. Well, you know, Don Slitz and I had a standing uh, writing appointment every Monday and Tuesday, every week. We wrote two days a week. On this day, we actually, seems like we would just come in and if we didn't have an idea, we would just talk and just try to find something that was going on in our lives that we had in common. But this day, Don had uh, the idea for When You Say Nothing At All, and I had recently bumped into Keith Whitley in the airport and he was going out. I was coming in and we just stopped in the corridor, you know, and just started talking for a while. And he goes, man, would you write me a song? And I went, are you kidding? I'd love to write you a song. (laughs) I love it. You know, he was like one of the best country singers we had. Oh, for sure. um, For sure. And so anyway, I said, sure, man. And so when we wrote, uh, the day we wrote, when you say nothing at all, we did the demo, and I sang the demo, and the first place we took it was to Garth Fundus for Keith Whitley. Right. And I wasn't sure they'd cut it, but they loved it, and they cut it and just knocked it out of the park. And and so, you know, 10 years later, Keith had passed away, and right. they did a tribute album to him, and then Allison Krauss, she picked that song that she wanted to sing off of the hits he had had. And she recorded it, and they brought me a copy from the administration company to my office and said, well, here's your uh, right. cut for the Keith Whitley tribute. And I put it on and played it, and it stood the hair up all over yeah. my body. I was like, this girl is incredible. What a singer. Right. And and so anyway, from that, the guy in the England heard the song, heard her version of it, and he was making the movie Notting Hill. And he decided he wanted to use that song in something. And so he had uh, Ronan Keating sing it with uh, a group called Boyzone. And <clears throat> they recorded it, and then it became a pop hit in the right. U.K. and the rest of the world. And it just kept going on its own. It was just one of those songs that uh, just 
had a life of its own and it and it's still to this day it just keeps going let's talk about let's talk about intellectual property right now and the value of songwriter and uh I've got a lot of songwriter friends who've had, you know, uh, n- numerous top tens and top n- number ones, numerous number ones, like you have. And and uh, you know, I don't know, man. It's it's one of those sensitive subjects for me. Watching friends of mine who had such success, and it's like I always say that the song used to have it used to ride off into the sunset. Certain copyrights, right? Uh-huh. I always saw I always saw my songs like a, a monopoly. And I had, you know, I had a, had a boardwalk in a park place and had a bunch of, you know, the railroad stations and trying to build up your catalog <laughs> to make it valuable, right? And and then you just yeah. sort of look up one day. Now, that's not what you're thinking about when you're when you're uh, writing songs. You're doing it for the right reasons and, and you want to make great music and that's the, the ultimate win. But at the end of the day, the days of us going like, I'd do this for free when we were younger. We, you know, we have kids and a family and we, we want to be rewarded. So what do you think today... <laughs> My my first success happened with Napster. I was showing up at places with a lot of college kids showing up at Ivy League schools and different places. I mean, I remember playing even at Rutgers, and I decided to go because the bar owners kept saying and the club owners that we were playing would say, we don't even know who these people are. They're not our usual, you know, they're not our usual suspects. So we would, so I decided to go to one of the, uh, uh, one of their apartments one day and they and they showed me on computer where they were downloading music for free and this was like whoa you know like it was a big deal like wait a minute what is that so what and and then along somewhere along the way we've really dropped the ball of protecting the songwriters and in turn the publishers and in turn it affects record sales with streaming and all that i know we got to continue to sort of make music and just go with the flow but where do you think uh I, I see our publishing now dropping off a cliff with new songs rather than fading off into the sunset. So it devalues the song's longevity. And, and obviously what you can, what the market value for, you know, is, is with it now. So w- what do you think and where are we right now in your mind? Uh, well, you know, I think I was in Washington, D.C. Um, maybe two weeks ago uh, lobbying for songwriters. And we have some legislation now that's going to help a lot it's just it's not the fix but it's it's a step in the right direction and so it's going to help us bring back a little bit of the value of what we do i mean we did get squashed pretty good there by uh mm-hmm. napster and a lot of the other ones you know spotify and uh people like that but it's also good for us i mean i have a channel uh, where my music is played on Pandora, and I I go there and listen to a lot of the other artists that they're playing because it's good music. It's back when the songs were great. And, oh yeah, you know today radio just doesn't. It's not about great songs. It's about a marketing campaign, mm-hmm. and they're just trying to get a demographic to the radio. I mean to to buy whatever their their uh, advertisers are paying them to get that demographic to their businesses and if they go back to great songs it'll heal a lot of things at country radio but right now it's more people trying to be pop country listeners like country music they always have no and that's why randy travis was so big the industry did that same thing they were trying to play pop music everything had strings on it and it was just kind of milk toast to people and then when randy came out wanted to just do country he didn't want to be pop one of the stories, and it's a true story, that he was at the record company one day, and they told him, said, you're, 
album, his first album, said it's in the pop charts. And he said, well, get it out of there. I don't want nobody thinking I'm pop. Right. But the funny thing about that is it was it was selling so many units that, it, you know, it showed up in the pop charts. But he just, he was real adamant about making sure everybody knew he was country. Right, right. Well, no, and he was. But isn't it funny how it sort of crossed? So, so it just sort of like when it's real and honest, the amount of people from different, you know, people that listen to different music, if it's just mm-hmm. that honest and real, it still impacts any listener. And I, I've always yeah. believed that. I have uh, I have two albums right now I'm about to release, and I think I'm going to release them, uh, you know, through the digital world um, with TuneCore. Uh, one of them is a, a group of island songs that I've written, you know, for like Chesney and some of these right. people who are doing island records, but they wind up not cutting a song or whatever. Some Beach will be on there uh, on yeah, that album. The Blake cut, right. But I'm, I wound up cutting them myself and uh, like a lot of the songs because I like them. So I'm going to release that pretty soon. And then I have a country album. Uh, I went back and recorded some stuff from SKO. And, wow. Which, by the way, that album was never digital. It was all, you know, oh, it never made, right. made it past vinyl or right. cassette, but uh, I got some of those songs and like some of the ones like Forever Never Amen that Randy Travis recorded, Deeper Than the Holler, uh, stuff I had hits with, uh, See My Father and Me, uh, things like that that I've just kind of updated a little bit, but I don't want them to be pop songs, I want them to be country. Right. So that when people buy my record, they know they're getting a country music record. You know? Right. Well, that's what's... That's and so, anyway, those are just some of the projects I'm working on and I loving it. it. When are you thinking you're going to release those? Are you going to release them simultaneously, or are you going to sort of one boom boom? I'll you know I'll stagger them just a little bit, but they're they're both ready to go. I just needed to master a couple of things, and then and then I'm and I'm ready if I can find a, a you know a good cover for the record. I have to go back and use one of my old pictures <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger. I hate taking pictures. I, I'm not. I, I'm sorry if you use the word hate, but man, <laughs> it's the most uncomfortable. Not, uh, uh, it just does not feel right at all for me. I don't know how you ever felt, but it was always like my last picture was the one. <laughs> like, we yeah. spend a whole day, and they go, that's the one. I'm going like, well, why don't we just start at the end of the day? Cause yeah, it, right. Yeah, they said, well, you... you yeah, even... I, I never, I was never, I was never, I never liked taking pictures. <laughs> I love it. But... Well, we've, we've, uh, uh, I actually, uh, I was touring with Bob Seger for about seven, eight months, and I met Pam Springsteen, which is Bruce's sister, and uh, and she was a great photographer, and she ended up doing a couple of my uh, latter records uh, covers and all. And she made me feel so oh, comfortable. Good. She really made me Pam. She she made me feel so comfortable. It was crazy. And uh, really, the first person that ever did it. I, and maybe I'm just getting. Uh, she caught me at a good time where I've I've gotten numb to it and I got a little used to it. But man, early on taking pictures, I don't know how our listeners feel, but when you you get the word smile and you get, I mean, it makes you not smile. You know, you know. You know, and you hear one, two, three, and all that, and that scares the heck out of me. So, anyway, we are with the great Paul Overstreet. We're going to be right back. You are inside a Mississippi Minute. Stand by. It's 
easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. But on the other hand, there's a golden band to remind me of. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Azar. You are in the very, very back half of a 60 minute, well, that's how long it takes us, a full hour to live in a Mississippi Minute. I am with the great Paul Overstreet. He is in Nashville. He's got a couple records coming out that we got to check out. Paul, so when you distribute the records, we're talking Pandora, we're talking Spotify. We got we got to get in with the game. Uh, so how are, how are you going to get it out there? I mean, like Cracker Barrel would be a great outlet for you, I think. Oh yeah, I have thought about Cracker Barrel. Yeah, it's, uh, I, it's interesting just to get your songs on the shelf, you know. And, you know, I bought a new computer that doesn't even have a CD drive in it. No, DVD they don't. or CD. So I had to go buy one, uh, you know, external. external. Right. But CDs are not, I mean, it's moving away from CDs. It's mostly downloads now. Well, and and why would you, when Apple Music got in the game of streaming, you knew sort of the writing was on the wall. Why you, You're paying, you know, five bucks or four ninety nine or a family package for $15 a month, and, and you don't have it anyway. It's not physically in your hands, so what's the difference? But here's what has, uh, here's what has sort of come, not just sort of has come back, is vinyl. So all of a sudden, yeah. and, and you get good value for vinyl, and people that, are, you know, my daughter is a 17-year-old that goes and grabs $100 that she makes, and she goes out and buys three pieces of vinyl, three records. And, and my new record I just made with, uh, it's called the, the band's name, Steve Azar and the Kingsmen. I've actually got David Briggs in it. And uh, it's it's a group of BB King's guys, uh, Randy Jackson's brother Herman, uh, Ray Neal, who played with Little Milton and was in from the Rayford Neal family from Baton Rouge, and the Albert, I mean, and uh, Walter King, who did the Angels of Harlem uh, for U2 and played with Sting. All these guys were played with BB and Elvis and all that, and we've got double vinyl records, so it's it's actually doing good, and and I love the fact of. Uh, that I get to look at this big piece of art. It's like it's like an event to open up a vinyl record, you know. Oh, that is really cool. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's uh, I can't quit. When I came home back in Mississippi, I, I was doing like I had a couple feature uh, tracks in like uh, Here Comes the Boom and Mall Cop Two, and I, I wrote the World Ski Championships official song and recorded that for them and in '15. But I. I, I wasn't thinking about writing a record, but I was here and I was doing it. And I looked up and I and I, you know, I was back alone writing, which I, I love doing. And all of a sudden, I was going like, "Well, I guess it's time to make a record." So we went into Club Ebony, which is this legendary blues club that BB King ended up buying before he passed away. And it's it's part of the BB King Blues Museum. And we recorded uh, a studio record there, and filmed a documentary called Something in the Water that's coming out. Sort of the, how we got together, got to know each other, got to love each other, and then make music, which is what you yeah. got to do. So uh, mm-hmm. we're touring together this year, and uh, it's, it's, it's been a big thrill, and I'm humbled that they've allowed me to sort of be their guy now. So anyway, that's what I'm doing now, and uh, it's been cool. So enjoying that is getting back. That is excellent. 
Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, it's more my. What a great know, project. Well, yeah, and 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 like for me, it was really what I grew up around. So I'm I'm really starting to be more honest than I ever have been, and and I think that's important as we get a little older that we tell the total truth before we uh before we perish. <laughs> yeah, there's certain parts of my life I won't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought it up on Some, this show. And somebody I, <laughs> asked me one time, "Why don't you write a book?" And I went. I don't think I can tell the truth. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Well, if my don't, kids would hate me for it. Oh, oh, well, listen, I have to call my editor, Will, and and go, hey, Will, my producer, and go, listen, not a good idea to tell that story that I just told. Like, I get crazy <laughs> honest on the radio, and then I realize my kids don't need to ever need to hear that. Now, they're at a point now where they're smart enough to, to not make those stupid decisions that <laughs> you and I make. Jimmy Buffett told me he's got something in a safe deposit box that he, it, it won't be pulled out until he's dead. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. <laughs> Can people get to you like on Twitter? You do all the social media stuff, Facebook? Yeah, I just started I started uh, doing, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Instagram, know, Facebook, kids, Twitter? Instagram, I started doing, putting some pictures on there of my airplane. I put one on there the other night. I, I'm a pilot, so I love flying. And I love it. And uh, also, I have a website, pauloverstreet.com, and people can uh, get to me through that as well. Okay, so is it at Paul Overstreet for your Instagram? Uh, I, I guess. <laughs> I love it. I, that, I don't really know. I, it's just I, I know you know how to go on there, but my daughters are starting to show me how to oh. load pictures. Well, well, they're the best administrators on the planet. We've had a great time. Paul, I can't thank you enough. We've been with Paul Overstreet. You have been in a Mississippi Minute. Brother, we got to bring you down, and uh, and I really look uh, look forward to seeing you again. I, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending an hour with me. Steve, it was great. It's a great honor, and I love your stuff, and I look forward to playing some shows with you. Any coming up, let me know. I'll try to get down there and play with you. You got it, brother. Blessings, man. Thanks a lot. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.